From Church on Morgan, a United Methodist congregation whose desire is to be a reminder of the beauty of God and each other. This podcast is a collection of Sunday teachings inspired by the Revised Common Lectionary and recorded weekly in Raleigh, North Carolina. And now, a moment of silence before this episode begins. Hear now the word of the Lord. As Jesus continued on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at a kiosk for collecting taxes. He said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. As Jesus sat down to eat in Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners joined Jesus and his disciples at the table. But when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard it, he said, healthy people don't need a doctor, but sick people do. Go and learn what this means. I want mercy and not sacrifice. I didn't come to call righteous people, but sinners. While Jesus was speaking to them, a ruler came and knelt in front of him saying, my daughter has just died, but come and place your hand on her and she'll live. So Jesus and his disciples got up and went with him. Then a woman who had been bleeding for 12 years came up behind Jesus and touched the hem of his clothes. She thought, if I only touch his robe, I'll be healed. When Jesus turned and saw her, he said, be encouraged, daughter. Your faith has healed you. And the woman was healed from that time on. When Jesus went into the ruler's house, he saw the flute players and the distressed crowd. He said, go away, because the little girl isn't dead, but is asleep but they laughed at him. After he had sent the crowd away, Jesus went in and touched her hand, and the little girl rose up. News about this spread throughout that whole region. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. For 12 years, a woman had been afflicted by this disease that caused her to bleed. For 12 years, she had used all of her her money, all of her financial resources, seeking answers and hope in the medical community, only to be left with nothing but an empty bank account and no healing. And so she turns to maybe a last resort and says, if only I can touch the hem of maybe this man, maybe I can find healing. It's another story about a woman. This is a, a mother from a region known as Canaan. She was a Canaanite woman, which if you know anything about that time, was a people sort of antagonistic with the Jewish people. They had their own religion. And this woman had a daughter who the storyteller says was demon-possessed. That's interesting. And this woman, desperate to find healing for her daughter, leaves the region of Cana and finds this roaming Jewish rabbi from Nazareth and, and, and hopes that maybe he can help. And at first... Jesus sort of dismisses her because, you know, he says, I came to help my own people. And yet this woman, this mother whose daughter was sick, hashtag nevertheless she persisted, kept pestering Jesus. And so Jesus finally responded to her. It's another story about another woman. This woman came one night to a party that Jesus was at in the Pharisee's home. And this woman didn't have a name, at least not that the story told her, storyteller told us. All we know about this woman is that she was called Sinner. Whew. 
And Sinner shows up one night in this dinner party, and if you remember the story, breaks this expensive oil and anoints Jesus' feet and dries her own tears with her hair and, and does this great gesture to Jesus. Of course, the Pharisees had some problems with this. Like, you know who this woman is? This is Sinner. How is this not scandalous to you? And Jesus looks at this moment and says, this is stunning. This is beautiful. People are going to be telling this story for years. And guess what? We still are. And then he says to this woman, your sins are forgiven. As if to say, I don't know, maybe stop calling her sinner. One more story. There's a Roman leader, a centurion. He's in charge of a, of a great number of men. And he has this servant that he loves. And the servant falls sick. And so somehow this Roman centurion had heard about Jesus and sent out some of his staff to go find Jesus to try and come and help heal his servant. And so Jesus begins to come to this man's house and, and, and the servants tell him, no, 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 no. The Roman centurion says, he's not worthy to have you come to his house. He believes that you could just sort of, from a distance, from a distance, you could speak a word of healing power and that would be enough. Jesus says, never have I seen such faith in all of Israel. What's up, Raleigh? How you doing? All right, good. Four of you are doing great. I'm glad to hear that. My name is Colby, and it is a pleasure to be with you here at Church on Morgan. A uh, little bit of backstory. I got to know Justin and Nicole about five years ago or so through mutual friends, and that's when I first heard about what y'all are doing out here. And look, I just need to tell you, I'm really freaking proud of you, okay? Like, for reals. On both an individual and a corporate level. Really quick on an individual level, by the way, life is really hard, and you're doing great. I'm serious. Like, life is hard, and you're doing it, and I'm really proud of you. And sometimes it's just really helpful to have even a stranger that you've never met before look you in the eyes and say, you're doing Life's hard. You're doing great. And then as a, as a church community, I'm telling you, I have been, so Sam referenced that I'm on tour right now for my second book. I'll mention that here in a second. But I have been traveling the country now for six months. I need you to know there are not many places like this in our country. What you have here is special. It's precious. It's holy. It's sacred. It's important. And I'm really proud of you for what you're doing here. So my second book is called The Shift, and it came out in uh, spring of 2020, just a couple weeks after this thing called COVID arrived, and it really destroyed a lot of plans, including a tour that I had planned. So that kind of all got shelved, and, and about, uh, last fall, I closed the church that I had started in San Diego eight years ago because we ultimately didn't survive the pandemic. And so I thought, what am I going to do now that my Sundays are free for the first time in 20 years? I've been a pastor for 20 years, and I thought, what if I try and reach out and maybe do this tour again? And so I've been traveling since January, and the book is called The Shift. The subtitle is Surviving and Thriving After Moving from Conservative to Progressive Christianity. Now, look, if those labels are not helpful for you, don't use them. I don't care. Labels are helpful until they're not. You know what I mean? But the point here, the book is a, is a survival guide for the, for the experience of when you have left or sometimes been kicked out of, <laughs> left more conservative, fundamental, closed-minded religion, and you've 
found yourself on this journey towards something, you still want to be connected to Christianity. There's something still in you that's like, I still want to be a part of that, but it has to be more open, more expansive, more inclusive. I use the term more progressive, but again, if it doesn't work for you, don't use it. It's fine. In fact, Sam read the, from the gospel reading where Jesus says, quotes the, the prophet and says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Really, that kind of sums it up because sacrifice, sacrifice tends to inherently exclude. Sacrifice creates a sort of gap between who's in and who's out, who's right and who's wrong. Sacrifice says, here's what you have to do or believe in order to be accepted. Whereas mercy kind of inherently includes Mercy is like, no, 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 everybody's in, baby. <laughs> mercy is, by the way, I didn't mean to like put you as the sacrifice and you as the mercy. It's just, it's just how they're, <laughs> just hang with me here. But mercy is this way of orienting yourself that says, it all belongs. It all belongs. So that's what this book is about. And I want to share with you something that I've learned over the years. And actually, one of the, the stories that came up in Sam's reading of the gospel today says it beautifully and it's this story of this woman who'd been bleeding for 12 years but also that makes me think of the story of the Canaanite mom which also makes me think of the, the woman known as sinner which also makes me think of the Roman centurion and here is what these stories make me think of and here's what stands out to me in these stories and here's what I want to talk about today is in each of these four stories there's this thing that Jesus says to these people there's this moment and I want to talk about it with you. To so the Roman centurion, he says, I haven't seen faith like this in all of Israel. And in that moment, the servant is healed. To the Canaanite woman, he says, you have great faith. Your daughter will be healed. To the woman known as sinner, he says, your faith has saved you. <laughs> Go in peace. And to the woman who's stuck bleeding for 12 years and touches just the hem of the garment of Jesus, he says, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. There's some sort of connection here in these stories between faith and being saved. Faith and being healed. And I find this endlessly fascinating, and this is what I want to explore with you over the next few minutes together. Connection between faith and saved. Now, oftentimes we might have, maybe we grew up hearing these stories or we have been told this or we've thought this ourselves and we read and we hear stories like this and oftentimes we are prone to think that the takeaway here is that these people had great faith which is to say they believed a certain particular thing and then they found a sort of healing from it and I just want to say I don't love that interpretation and here's why because if the idea here is that if you just believe the right thing or believe it strongly enough that then you can convince some divine being to activate healing power. I don't love this because this creates the idea of a God who theoretically has the capacity and the power to do great healing, but sort of keeps it to himself for the right moment when someone, and this puts a lot of pressure on us, when someone is able to get it right, you know what I mean? Like if you can just get it right, then you can sort of activate this divine being's spigot of healing. And I just don't love what, the way that this paints God, and I don't love the pressure that it puts on us to get it right, or to believe it strongly enough, or to pray 
hard enough. And so I want to suggest to you an alternative way to hear these stories, a different way to think about this connection between faith and saved. And here is my suggestion to you. When I read these stories, I notice that these are four individuals who are all, you might say, at the end of their rope as it relates to particular ways in which the world suggests to us we can find happiness, fulfillment, meaning, purpose. Each of these people have reached the end of the rope and they're being exposed to the fragility of their own humanity. For instance, you've got a Roman leader who presumably has the backing of the world's most powerful empire at his disposal. And he turns to this random Jewish rabbi from Nazareth. You've got this Canaanite woman who has her own religion, presumably has given her life to this religion, and yet when her daughter is sick with this demon possession, goes to a Jew? You got this woman known as Sinner, which is another way to say that her community has decided for her who and what she is. Oh, you think that's your name? No, 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 no. You're Sinner. And then you've got this, this other woman who has used all of her money to find answers in the medical community, only to be left with an empty bank account and still a bleeding body. Now, part of why I still, to this day, find beauty and truth and meaning in the Bible is because I think we have stories like this that, yes, they tell about a particular event, a particular thing that transpired with an individual, but it has this way of illuminating a more universal truth that is real about the human experience. Because who among us cannot relate or doesn't know what it's like to feel like politics can let you down sometimes? <laughs> The most powerful empire in the world sometimes can't get it all figured out for us. Or who among us doesn't know what it's like to feel like I've given myself to this religion? I have believed all what they've told me to believe. I've done all the things they told me to do. I've avoided all the icky things they told me not to. And yet still I find myself, uh, I don't know, empty, hollow, still searching. Or who among us maybe knows a little bit of what it's like to be told by a community who we are. To have a family that has decided what we are. To feel rejected by our people. And who among us can't relate to this sense of money can't buy happiness? I know I'm with you. I still want to test the theory, but still. <laughs> <laughs> I think there are those of us in this room who realize you can set a goal where if I just make that much, then it'll all be okay, and you get there and you realize, oh, I mean that much. I mean that. And who among us can't relate to this idea of being disillusioned sometimes by the medical world? We're told to just trust the science. Hey, guess what? That doesn't always work out, does it? So these stories, to me, they point to this experience of being a human in this world where we find ourselves disillusioned and disappointed and let down 
and frustrated and emptied and hollowed out by these things in our life that we thought were there to provide for us guardrails of security and safety and belonging. And yet now, sometimes they get exposed for what they are and they leave us realizing just how fragile life is. This is... This is what stands out to me in these four stories. So then what is it? What is it that Jesus maybe is responding to in these four moments? When he says your faith has saved you. What is Jesus responding to? I'll say this. Oftentimes, and this is a lot of the work that I've done in my, in my work with The Shift as I have pastored, people who have made this journey from sort of closed, conservative Christianity, something more open. One of the things that I've run into, and I talk about this in the opening chapters of the book, is that what can often happen is that people conflate the word faith with the idea of beliefs. And we think that my faith is the things that I believe. And so what happens then is people go through this shift, they go through this evolution, this transformation, and they end up telling me some version of the following. They end up saying, I think I've lost my faith. (laughs) Or, man, what happened to my faith? Or my faith just isn't what it used to be. And when I hear this, what I try and help them reorient and reimagine and understand is faith is not our list of beliefs. Beliefs, they will come and go. I mean, If you're in this room, I imagine you know what it's like to, at some point in your life, reflect on how you don't believe the things that you did 3, 5, 10, 15, 20 years ago. Beliefs come and go. Beliefs is not the same thing as faith. Faith, rather, Richard Rohr talks about faith as this opening, this sense that there is a light out there, and it is in this opening, this turning, this this posture of openness. So faith, I submit to you, That faith is more of a verb. It's more of a thing that we do. It's a posture that we hold. It's an orientation that we move through life with. Faith is not a noun. It is not something we hold. If faith is something that we have, then it's subject to decay and deterioration and loss. But no, faith is the thing that activates us. Faith is the thing that causes us actually to look at our beliefs sometimes and say, huh, what do I want to do with this belief? That's interesting. So when people change their beliefs, or maybe lose their beliefs, or maybe pick up new beliefs. This is not them losing their faith. I say, no, this is your faith doing what it's designed to do. And why do I say that? Because in these stories, when Jesus says, your faith has saved you, the English word faith, almost every time you come across it in the New Testament, the Greek word behind this is the Greek word pistis. And pistis, more accurately understood, has a sense of trust to it. Has a sense of trust. And so anytime you're reading your Bibles, if you do, and you come across the term faith in the New Testament, I invite you to just swap out faith for trust, and you're getting more at the heart of what's going on, if for no other reason than because faith oftentimes conjures up the idea of belief, but this is not about belief. This is about a trust. Oh, here, let me give you an example. I need four volunteers. I need four volunteers to kind of come over here for me. And the quicker four of you say yes, the quicker everyone else can be relieved of the pressure and the anxiety. So four people just come on up. This is great. I see one. Thank you. I see two. I see three. And I see four. Everybody say thank you. They let you off the hook. Okay. 
So Jillian, and what's your name? Sherry. Jillian and Sherry, why don't you face each other right here, right in the aisle, and then Maddie and Sam, Sam come around here next to them, okay? Yep, scoot over. I need you to scoot over that way just a little bit. Okay, now, reach out and grab the hands of the person next to you and, like, really sort of get a nice, firm grip, okay? You might want to take a little stand back. Okay, there you go. Get a little bit more firm. Some of you are now really grateful you did not volunteer for this. Okay. You guys feel okay? You keep changing your hands on me. This is not... You can't... Decide. Decide and lock it in. Okay, you feel good? You feel good. Okay. All right, ready? Okay, everybody, thank you. Let's thank our volunteers. You did great. Thank you. You can go back to your seats. You did great. You did great. You did great. <sighs> so that might have been your first ever witness of what I call a belief stand. A belief stand, which is different than a trust fall. A belief stand Honestly, I believed that the four of you would have caught me. I really did. I believed that in my heart. But I didn't have to do anything about it. I could just stand here with that comfortable belief that if I fell, they would catch me. But a trust fall is an actual commitment to this idea. It is a movement. It is not just a thing that I hold inside my head, a belief. It is a movement. And this, I submit to you, is what Pistis is trying to get at Anytime you come across it in the New Testament, it is a movement. It is a posture. This is what these four individuals in these stories exhibit. The woman, so the, the story that Sam read earlier of this story of the woman who has been bleeding for 12 years, Luke has a variation of that story where he adds in this detail that not only does Jesus turn around and face the woman, but the woman kneels and kind of throws herself at Jesus' feet and then explains like what she just did. It's like she opens up herself and says, here is why I'm doing what I'm doing. You could imagine her just in complete vulnerability offering everything she has. And then you have the, the Canaanite woman who again persists, persists, and throw, kneels and throws herself at the feet of Jesus in desperation. And you have the, the, the woman known as Sinner who... who throws herself at the feet of Jesus. And you have the Roman centurion who has this, this he's, he's so convinced that Jesus doesn't need to come to him, so he's got this humility, this trust. In all four of these stories, you see these individuals throwing themselves sort of at this person with this wide open trust. This sense of politics, empire, can't help me. Money, Doctors, science, can't help me. Community, family, they've left me out in the cold. Religion, it's not working. All four of these characters, all four of these individuals have this, just this trust, this openness. If these stories are about people believing the correct thing, and oftentimes this is what we think, right? When your faith has saved you, we think, have the right beliefs so that, what, saved? Like when you die, you'll go somewhere magical? No, 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 no. None of the characters in these stories, this is another way these oftentimes are misunderstood or misinterpreted, none of the characters in these stories give any kind of belief statement. Did you, do you notice this? Oftentimes we, we read these stories and we think, oh, Jesus is applauding their faith, which is to say he's applauding them being really good Christians. Fun fact, Christianity didn't exist at that point. 
There's no way these people were not like, I believe that you are the risen Savior. He hadn't died yet. (laughs) I believe that you are the second person in the Trinity. The idea of the Trinity hadn't really been worked out yet. There's no belief statements being uttered. There is trust. There is openness. There is, I've got nothing left except for me. I know it's not much, but I'm giving it all. This is what Jesus was so, I believe, blown away with and impacted by. Your pistis has saved you. Now the word saved, interesting. The Greek word behind saved is the Greek word sozo. And in three of these stories, your pistis has sozoed you. Another way to translate sozo, not just saved, but saved literally means to be put back together again, to be restored or what I like, to be made whole. And the fourth, Iomai, which is often translated as healed, also can mean to be put back together again, to be made whole. To be saved in these stories is not Jesus saying your belief in some sort of doctrinal statement will assure that when you die, you have a happy place to go to. This is not what saved means. Their experience of sozo in these moments were here and now. It was wholeness. It was being put back together again. It's an experience for here and for now. And what brought this wholeness to these individuals' lives? Their trust. They got to the end of the rope of all the things that they thought they could find meaning and purpose and value and salvation from. And they said, I got nothing but me. Here it is. I trust. So what's my point in all this? Part of what I hope to do in some ways you might even say this is maybe my life's mission. Uh, I don't know. I've been a pastor for 20 years, for 10 years in conservative evangelicalism and and, in the last 10 years in kind of this post-evangelical progressive world. And the more I do this work, the more and more convinced I am that this move from sacrifice to mercy, this move from closed to open, This move from focusing on beliefs to a posture of openness and trust might kind of be the whole point. Another way to say that is at some point along the way, Christianity became a religion that hyper-focused on believing the correct things as though the God who created everything, the thing that that God cares about most are the ideas that we have in our brains. I've got four kids. My oldest just graduated high school this week. I know I don't look that old, thank you. (laughs) I've been a dad now for 18 years. Not once, not once has it ever occurred to me, you know what matters most to me (laughs) with my kids? Is that they have the correct ideas about who I am and 
the things that I am up to in the world. So I don't know, maybe one reason why I'm here is to tell you that the thing that matters most to God, I don't, I don't know that it's beliefs, y'all. I don't. I don't. Don't mishear me. I'm not saying beliefs don't matter. Beliefs do matter. You have a spectrum of, of beliefs that bring harm and pain and rotten fruit, and then you have beliefs that bring life and freedom and lightness and good fruit. So beliefs matter. But in terms of your standing with, your connection to, your identity as a love child of God, beliefs got nothing to do with it. You're a love child of God just as you are right now. And there's really nothing you can do about it. How great is that? How great is that? Another thing I want to leave you with is you might be here this morning and you can relate to one of these four characters or all of them. Maybe you're here this morning and you feel like you're at the end of your own rope. You feel completely exhausted by, worn out by, disillusioned with, I don't know, the political enterprise of our country, the, the systems, the policies, the whole structure you're just exhausted by. Or maybe you feel completely just at the end of it with religion, or maybe your family or community, or whatever it is. Maybe you're here this morning, and you're like, yeah, Colby, when you say life's hard, you don't know the half of it. You might be here this morning just barely hanging on, like the smallest breeze this afternoon might be enough to just knock you over. Two pieces of good news. One, you're not alone. The person sitting right next to you, I can almost guarantee you, they're as exhausted and tired and scared and fragile as you are. Or if they're not right now, they were last week. Or if they're not right now, they will be a week from now. My point is, is you're not alone. It's not hard in your life because you're doing it wrong. Life is just hard. And the other piece of good news is this. The, 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 the pistis that sozos, <laughs> the faith that saves. Another way to think about that is where does that, where does that sense of trust begin? When do we enact that sort of letting go of everything? It's when we have nothing left. So if, if you're here this morning and you feel like, I, I don't know that I have much left, Colby. I, I, think, I think I'm barely hanging on. Guess what? You are in the perfect place to begin to experience sozo. The path, you might say it like this, the path to wholeness actually begins at weakness. When you have nothing left, you are in the perfect place to begin to know and experience this being put back together again. Because wholeness, salvation, wholeness is not about never being broken. Wholeness is about this trust in the great love and the great mercy of a God who puts us back together again every time we break. Wholeness is not about never being broken. You're going to be broken. You've been broken. Wholeness, salvation, is about this trust 
in the great love and mercy of God who puts us back together again every time we break. And I offer this to you in the name of the Father, which is a way to say in the name of the great divine, the great mystery, the great source, if the pronoun trips you up, the great Father, the great Mother, the great divine source. In the name of the Father and the Son, the Son is a way to say sometimes the divine needs to put flesh on because you and I, we have flesh. How else do we get to know and touch and feel and taste and see the God of who is in all and through all, but through flesh in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, which is a way to say the God that lives inside of you and you and you and you, this divine source that is in there and in there, the Imago Dei that's in all of you, the thing that activates all of us, that's the Spirit. And so in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, all today. God's children say. If this episode has been meaningful to you, would you take a moment to share it with a friend? To support this ministry or learn more about our community, visit us at churchonmorgan.org.